Hi there, this is Valerie Francis. As you know, Leslie and I are hard at work right now studying Gone Girl by Gillian Flynn for season two of the Writer's Room podcast. Now, we actually looked at the film adaptation of this novel way back in the early days of the Roundtable podcast, and we thought it might be kind of fun to replay that episode for you now as a bit of a primer. We're also really excited to hear the voices of Anne Hawley, Kim Kessler, and Jari Bolander again. So remember, season two of the Writer's Room podcast airs on December the 9th. So if you haven't yet read the novel, you've still got time. Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better editor, following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years experience. My name is Kim Kessler, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Joining me shortly are four of my fellow certified StoryGrid editors, Jari Bolander, Valerie Francis, Anne Holly, and Leslie Watts. Each week, we watch a movie from one of the 12 content genres and complete a global fool's cap worksheet, then discuss it using the six core questions. This week, we're disappearing into a deep analysis of the 2014 thriller Gone Girl, screenplay by Gillian Flynn based on her novel and directed by David Fincher. Here's a synopsis adapted from Wikipedia. The day of their fifth wedding anniversary, Nick Dunn returns home to find his wife, Amy, is missing. Her disappearance receives heavy press coverage as Amy was the inspiration for her parents' popular Amazing Amy children's books. Detective Rhonda Boney does a walkthrough of their house and finds a stray drop of blood in the kitchen. Forensic analysis uncovers the remnants of cleaned bloodstains, concluding that Amy was murdered. Suspicions point to Nick, and his apathetic behavior is interpreted by the media as characteristic of a sociopath. Flashbacks reveal that Nick and Amy's once passionate marriage has disintegrated. Both lost their jobs in the recession and moved from New York City to Nick's hometown of North Carthage, Missouri. Nick became lazy and distant and began cheating on Amy with one of his students. The detective unearths evidence of financial troubles and domestic disputes, and a witness states that Amy wanted to purchase a gun. Medical records shows Amy is pregnant, and Nick denies knowledge. The detective finds Amy's diary, which highlights her growing isolation, ending with the fear that Nick will kill her. Amy is revealed to be alive and well, having changed her appearance and gone into hiding in a distant campground in the Ozarks. Amy plans the framing in great detail after she learned that Nick was cheating on her, and she resolved to punish him. She befriends a pregnant neighbor to steal her urine for the pregnancy test, drains her own blood to leave traces of evidence of murder, and fabricates a diary describing her fear of Nick. She also has Nick increase her life insurance so it looks like he murdered her for money. By using the clues in a treasure hunt game that she and Nick play on their anniversary, she ensures that he will visit the places where she has planted the corroborating evidence of his guilt for the police to discover. She anticipates that Nick will be convicted and executed for her murder and plans to commit suicide after his conviction. Nick hires a lawyer who specializes in defending men accused of killing their wives and meets Amy's ex-boyfriend from 10 years prior who says Amy falsely accused him of rape and gradually deduces Amy's plan. He also approaches another ex-boyfriend, the wealthy Desi Collings, against whom Amy previously filed a restraining order, but Desi refuses to share any details. 
When Amy's neighbors at the campground rob her of her remaining money, she calls Desi and convinces him that she ran away from Nick because he was abusing her. Desi agrees to hide her in his lake house, which is equipped with surveillance cameras. Nick convinces his twin sister, Margot of his innocence. After Nick's mistress reveals their affair at the press conference, Nick appears on a talk show to profess his innocence and apologize for his failures as a husband in the hope of luring Amy. His performance rekindles Amy's feelings for him, even as Detective Boney arrests him for her murder. Amy inflicts injuries on herself and uses Desi's surveillance cameras to her advantage, making it appear that Desi kidnapped and raped her. She seduces Desi and kills him during sex by slitting his throat. Covered in Desi's blood, she returns home and names Desi as her captor and the rapist, clearing Nick of suspicion. When Detective Boney questions Amy about holes in her story, she accuses her of incompetence, and the FBI sides with Amy, forcing the detective to back down. Amy tells Nick the truth, saying that the man she watched pleading for her return on TV is the man she wants him to become again. Nick shares this information with Boney, his attorney, and his sister Margot, but they have no way to prove Amy's guilt. Nick intends to leave Amy and expose her lies, but she reveals she is pregnant, having artificially inseminated herself with his sperm stored at their fertility clinic. Nick reacts violently to her insistence that they remain married, but feels responsible for the child. Despite Margot's objections, Nick reluctantly decides to stay with Amy, and the happy couple announces on television that they are expecting a child. Okay, so that's intense, and we're going to dig right in with the global genre. Anne? Well, this is a thriller, subgenre psychological. Thriller subgenres are usually determined by the setting, such as medical thrillers in hospitals, journalism thrillers in newsrooms, and so on. This story is closely tied to a house and a marriage and involves the mental manipulations of a husband and wife. I'm tempted to class Nick's internal arc as a morality testing with a surrender outcome, where a once strong character is tested by a loss he can't recover from, and so he just surrenders. But then Nick isn't really very strong at any time, except as he's narrating himself. Um, he describes himself with as having some strength, but he doesn't really have any. Still, he has a cunning quality. He's very cunning. And that leads me to think of the morality punitive subgenre, where a despicable protagonist with repugnant goals is admirable only because of his cunning, but winds up justly punished. And I feel like that that's how this story played for me. But the audience, this there's so much mirroring of morality in this story to the audience that I think what you bring to it is very much what you're going to take out of it. Do you find him as despicable as I find him? Uh, do you sympathize at all with Amy? I don't. So to me, morality punitive is probably pretty accurate. There's a secondary external genre of a marriage love story that also ends negatively. It's kind of a hate story. And I think Leslie may have a couple more things to say about this later. In thinking about the internal genre, based on the work that um, Leslie and I did for the blog post on internal genres, I read through your you know, morality testing versus morality punitive, and I went back and looked. And based on the way the audience feels, I would go with morality testing in this case and surrender, morality testing surrender. Because with a morality punitive plot, you're really going to feel that sense of justice at the end. It's really like, ha, you got exactly what you deserve. And in this case, I don't think that the audience totally feels that way, that I think it's there's still a sense of pity and a sense of like, 
isn't there a way around this? Can't you do better than this? You know, can't you stand up and do what's right? And I think because we see him just give in, especially sitting on the couch there, he's just, he, you can see him resign at the very end where he's just like, we're going to have a baby, you know, like that kind of thing. I think it really does look like surrender. And also with the surrender plot, it's that feeling that at any point that they could quote unquote, redeem themselves. Like the, the the test of surrender kind of comes up all the way to the very end, where with punitive, they go so bad so early on that you just are waiting for them to get their comeuppance. It's not really a question of what they're going to do, but just how exactly they're going to get caught and pay for it. So again, it just really does seem like it mirrors that morality testing surrender. So maybe my first hit on that was actually my first thought, best thought, yeah. In that case, it, it really, I wasn't really sure what it was until I read your things. And then I was like, oh yeah, there it is. And then I went back and looked and yeah, sure enough, it really does feel like the morality testing surrender. So that was a great call. Great. So let's go on to the beginning hook, middle build and ending payoff. Valerie, will you take us through that? Absolutely. So in the editor's six core questions, what we want to do for the beginning hook, middle build and ending payoff is describe each act in a sentence or two. So that's what I'll do now. I'll have the full breakdown of the five commandments in the show notes, though, if you want to reference those. So in the beginning hook, Nick discovers that his wife is missing and cooperates with police in the investigation. However, when it's revealed that Amy was pregnant at the time of her disappearance, Nick becomes a suspect in the case and refuses to talk to police further without a lawyer. Interestingly, Nick knows that his wife never wanted children. So he wonders whether the pregnancy story is even true. The middle bill starts with the police finding Amy's false diary, and they use that as a key piece of evidence in the case against Nick. Finding the diary is also a great transition into the revelation that Amy is still alive and has planned the entire scenario. However, her plan goes awry when she is robbed and forced to call an old boyfriend, Desi, for help. And as Kim mentioned in the synopsis, Desi is the guy she had a restraining order against. Realizing that she's trapped, Amy devises a new plan and murders Desi. It's a great plan. The ending payoff. Amy returns home saying that Desi was behind the abduction the whole time and that she killed him in self-defense. Nick doesn't believe her story, but realizing that she is pregnant, for real this time, decides to stay married to her. Amy and Nick live unhappily ever after. That pretty much sums it up. (laughs) Jari, did you have something to say about this? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we had talked a little bit about this before we recorded, and and I really like this movie. I mean, I'm not a big, big fan of Ben Affleck, so, you know, take that with a grain of salt. Um, but the way it starts out, if you really want to build some intrigue and some suspense, the way this starts out is great, where he basically says, I want to crack my wife's head open and, and look at her brain kind of thing. And you're like, what does that mean? And so- Right. It's a little, oh, it's a little creepy. Yeah. <laughs> a little creepy. But it immediately kind of sets the tone that- Yes, it does. Oh, this guy, Nick, we need to watch out for him. And, and it's a good redirection. Well, and just on that note, the reason why we watch movies, right, is because we're learning how to tell stories and stories, all this stuff applies to whether we're talking about books, whether we're talking about short stories, or whether we're talking about films. But one thing I love about films is the the opening shot, closing shot, mirror image that often happens. And in this case, we have that where, you know, he's saying that line about 
you know, when I think of my wife, I, th- I think of her head and he's, you know, stroking her hair. So that starts out kind of implicating him as a very creepy thing to say. But then at the end, when she turns and looks at him and you know yeah. what's inside that brain of her, she is, it's she's very, so evil. Ooh, it's very I mean, <laughs> I, I just really like this actress a lot. Yes. And she oh my gosh. Rosalind Pike, she's amazing. Yes. Stone so cold psychopath killer. I mean, it's just creepy. Yeah. So. Okay. <sighs> okay. Here we go. Leslie, what are the obligatory scenes and conventions? of the thriller story and how does Gone Girl stack up? So we have for the first obligatory scene an inciting crime indicative of a master villain. There must be victims. So Nick returns home to find his cat outside, his living room in disarray and Amy missing. Now this on its face is not a crime, but we later find out that she's disappeared herself and that Uh, She's put Nick in the frame for taking the blame. The next obligatory scene is speech and praise of the villain. So we have a speech by a character or a revelation that praises the cunning or brilliance of the villain. And this can be by the hero. It can be by the victim. It can be by the villain herself. It could be by a secondary character. But in this case, Amy, the villain, brilliantly lays out all the steps of her plan, proving that she is a master killer. And she recounts this. When we first get her point of view, she talks about how she set him up. The next obligatory scene is the hero protagonist becomes the victim. Now, I'm of two minds about this. Technically, Nick isn't a victim until he's arrested, officially, After the police confront him with Amy's diary, the Punch and Judy puppets, and the handle of one of the puppets that ostensibly was the murder weapon. That is, he's not in any real danger of death until that point. And even then, it's pretty removed in time, despite the way they talk about it. But he becomes the victim of Amy's crime almost immediately, and it becomes very personal for her the moment she saw his girlfriend or she saw him with his girlfriend and do that touching her lips, like clearing the snow from her lips, the way he had done with, with Amy when they met. And this happens when Amy tells the story to Greta at the motel. The next obligatory scene is the hero at the mercy of the villain. This is the core event of a thriller. The all is lost moment when the hero unleashes his or her gift. This scene, again, is what we mean by the core event. It's the one that the audience is waiting for. It's when the life value shifts at the height of the core emotion. Now, technically, Nick is at Amy's mercy from the beginning, but it's when she shows up at home pretending to love him and pretending also that Desi had attacked her that he shifts from potential death to life because he's no longer in the frame for killing her. But when she tells him he can't leave her and reveals that she's pregnant, he realizes he's at her mercy for the foreseeable future, which shifts the value from life to damnation. So I would argue that's the stronger case, but it comes really close to the end of the story, obviously. 
Now, the scene that is the most emotionally intense for me is the one when Amy kills Desi while they're having sex. And the life value in that scene shifts from life to death. But Desi isn't the hero, so it's not the hero at the mercy of the villain scene. So the intensity of that scene seems out of place with the rest of the movie. And so that's something you want to watch for. Your core event should be the most intense and others should be, you know, have relative to that a little less. The final obligatory scene or two scenes, should I say, is the false ending. So the thriller must have two endings. The first is when Amy returns home. Nick can't be convicted of killing Amy because she's not dead. The second is when the interview airs revealing that Amy is pregnant and then the scene cuts to Nick explaining to his sister Margot why he must stay with Amy. And so we know he is essentially doomed for his natural life. And that sets up the damnation for Nick. And it couldn't happen to a nicer guy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fantastic. Leslie, as you were talking and you mentioned, you know, that scene with Desi, the murder scene, and it's super intense, right? And it is like the height of the emotions of, oh my gosh, this is like everything that she's set up to do, she finally has done it, you know, really reached her limit there. And so because now that's in your mind as the reader or the viewer, that you know what she's truly capable of and Nick knows what she's truly capable of, like when they're standing in the shower together and she's admitting everything and washing all of the blood off of her. And he's like, you're a murderer. You killed a guy. She's just so nonchalant about it. And so just in that moment, I mean, that's a pretty good hero at the mercy of the villain, you know, being naked in the shower, having to deal with her. Take your clothes off. You might be wearing a wire and you're like, you just killed someone. Right. We're in the hospital. You got, you still have blood all over yourself. And you're like, yeah, get undressed. So I know you're not wearing a wire. And then, oh, right. she's just cool as a cucumber about it. And so I guess just knowing that that's in our minds, like even though the last few scenes feel very domestic, right? Like they're just getting dressed, their conversation, they're talking. But because we know that that happened and what she's capable of, and he knows what she's capable of, it feels that psychological element of the thriller as opposed to actual threat of life and death. It's the the mind aspect. Um, maybe why it kind of works, but it definitely is different than what we would normally see um, as far as that moment being the most intense at the actual climax of the story. Interesting, interesting stuff. Okay, Jari, take us through the conventions of a thriller. Sure. The thing about conventions is that all, all stories, all genre story have certain things that you have to have in there They or they won't work. And this is no exception. And the first one for a thriller is the hero, victim, and villain. These three roles must be clearly defined throughout the story and the protagonist must be a hero. You know, it's a little muddied in here because the hero, victim, and villain change throughout this whole story. I mean, Initially, the hero is the detective, Boney, who's trying to find Amy. And then you think, oh, maybe it's this guy, this defense lawyer, Tanner Bolt. And you kind of really don't know. And then you think, okay, now is it really Nick? Because Nick is the protagonist or is Amy the protagonist? It switches back and forth. Now, it's not as clear as it should be. But since globally this story works, it's, it makes it a little confusing. But it still still seems to to get it done. The victim... Seems to be Amy at the beginning, but then it's Desi and Nick, and then clearly it's Nick towards the end. 
uh, as Leslie mentioned, he's like (laughs) damned to be with this woman. And then the villain, you know, it starts out being Nick, but then it's clearly Amy. She is absolutely 100% the master criminal on this. And she's just evil incarnate. It just, she looks so sweet and such a Stetford wife. And then she's just complete psychopath. The hero's object of desire is to stop the villain and save the victim. In this case, Detective Boney clearly wants to um, save Amy as it starts out. But then, you know, Nick's the villain and he she has her doubts about him. And then is it really Tanner Bolt, the defense attorney, clearly wants to save Nick. So it's sort of the hero moves around. But in the end, you can kind of think of Nick, uh, Ben Affleck's character is the, I don't know, anti-hero or flawed hero. I mean, he ain't Batman. Oh, no, he was Batman. <laughs> Never mind. Didn't play that very well. Um, the power divide between the hero and the villain is very large. The villain is far more powerful than the hero. I mean, Amy has been planning this for what seems like years, <laughs> but he, she is just one step ahead of the police. She's one step of Nick. She's thought through this. She's read all these murder murder books. She's looked at all the tape. She's done everything she can. And the way it unfolds and the way she does it is just amazing. And she makes it so the whole town is like Nick is a is the guy. I mean, even you know national TV, the kind of Fox News talking heads hate this guy. And so that's really a powerful thing. And, and even in society, uh, unfortunately, when, when you do see women missing or, or women getting hurt, it's usually the quote unquote person that loves them. That's the main suspect in, in most of them. So it's also a comment on the, the tragedy of that in society. Uh, the next one is a speech and praise of the villain. And this happens at about 42 minutes in. And this is when Amy talks about disappearing. Uh, and talks about the montage and the kind of flashback of, you know, Nick just packed her up to go to Missouri and he didn't ask her to go. So I think this is sort of the start of, I didn't really want to do this. And this is the first part of the speech. And then really the, the main part is at a, a, an hour of six when she tells how she faked a murder. And it is absolutely brilliant. The speech and praise of the villain typically is not done by the villain or cannot be done by the villain. It's kind of a little cliche, but this one was perfectly done. I mean, she's in that really crappy little car and she's, you know, has a checklist, which is another awesome thing. And there's so many of these. I mean, you know, go with who's Nick's sister when they finally find the present that she left and say, hey, she staged this whole thing. She's just really cunning. And then um, Nick's doing the interview. He literally lays out why he loves her and how she's so awesome. So, so many good, good ones in this. The next one is a MacGuffin and in this one, clearly it's, where's Amy? <laughs> so it's it's actually Amy. And then you need a bunch of investigative red herrings. And these are like down false alleys and things that are misdirection. And there's like so many. I mean, I'll put them in the show notes, but there's just, and they're all done really beautifully. So if you ever want to like set up one of these misdirections, I mean, it is really, really well done. And, and the best ones are... Uh, the actual clues that Amy leads on this scavenger hunt on their fifth anniversary. I mean, the best little line is like, and we have our first clue from Detective Boney. And it literally says clue one. And you're kind of like, ah, oh, kind of cool. But, you know, it's just, again, she's so evil. It's just, oh, it's such a brilliant, brilliant evil villain. Uh, the next one is is the 
the villain needs to make it personal. And clearly she is really pissed off at Nick for cheating on her. And that's the reason why this whole thing came about as Leslie mentioned when, when she catches them kissing outside the bar. I mean, she is just, she wants to get him. She's going to stop at nothing. And then another one can be for a thriller, but since this is a psychological thriller, the, the clock aspect, like there's a timeline. There's really not a lot of this other than the looming doom of, you know what, Nick may get, uh, you know, put to death in Missouri because it's a death penalty state, but that's not really as dominant. So those are the conventions of a thriller. And um, back to you, Kim. So the MacGuffin is supposed to be what the villain wants, what they're after. So in this one, instead of it being Amy, where's Amy? It's like, it's what does Amy want? Well, in this case, Amy wants revenge, right? Like that's her MacGuffin is to get revenge and control over Nick. Yeah, if, if I recall, I thought it's actually supposed to be either something physical, like a quest kind of thing. You know, like when we did Marathon Man, it was like the diamonds were the MacGuffin. I'm just wondering, though, since this is a psychological thriller, if there is some difference there, because in this case, it's really about power, right? Like, and she wants to mess with him. Yeah. So anyway, that might be interesting. Yeah, something to think about. Just looking in the story grid, it's in part 31, if anyone wants to reference it. Sean writes, a MacGuffin is the object of desire for the villain. If the villain gets the MacGuffin, he will win. Some familiar MacGuffins are the codes to the nuclear warhead, 1,000 kilos of heron, microfilm, and in the case of the Silence of the Lambs, it's the final pieces of skin to make the woman's suit. The MacGuffin must make sense to the reader. It doesn't necessarily have to be realistic, just believable. I think Alfred Hitchcock coined the term when asked about the device in North by Northwest. MacGuffins are mm. essentially the antagonist's literal objects of desire. Okay, so it's definitely about the villain, and it's definitely about what the villain's object of desire. Because when we do the editor six core questions, when we get to objects of desire, normally we're looking at the protagonist. But it is always a great idea to look at your villain as well, your antagonist. So in this case, the MacGuffin is make sure you have it clearly delineated delineated what your villain is after because that's going to really drive all of their motivations, which you have to have that nailed down in a thriller. Yeah, so maybe – it doesn't have to be something physical. I mean, those examples were all sort of physical objects. Right. And it, and it probably most often is. So maybe in a psychological thriller, we don't need a MacGuffin. Or maybe we don't need a physical one. It's a psychological MacGuffin as well, which it is in this case. She wants, she doesn't want a thing. She wants control and revenge. Yeah. And yeah, or her independence. Amy's psychosis starts with her parents. Amazing Amy book is going to muss with your head, man. <laughs> Just, and her, her parents are all like, that mom, wow. Jari, I don't know if you mentioned it, but I see in your notes that you pointed out about the clock, about the, the timeline does get accelerated when Amy gets robbed. So I did. I liked that pointed out. That makes her go has to go active. She doesn't just get to sit around and enjoy her victory. She actually has to start doing something. Yeah. Because otherwise she's going to get caught. Like people are going to find out about her if she doesn't have money to hide out in places. So yeah, I mean, it totally screws her plan up, right? I mean, her whole plan is to commit suicide. But yeah, the clock element is definitely different in this one. In respect to her, her object of desire, did anyone else notice that when Boney, and I think she goes with um, Nick to the homeless camp 
that one guy is sitting there reciting the Declaration of Independence. Oh, yeah. That's a good call. Yeah, good call. I did notice that he was saying that, but I didn't, I wasn't thinking about why he was saying it. So that's good thematic stuff. Oh. I was looking for anything that I could focus on that I could enjoy in this movie. <laughs> I know. I know. You had a hard time with it, Anne. Okay. So there it is. There's the MacGuffin of a psychological thriller because she has not been independent her whole life. I mean, she's put in this amazing Amy box. Her mom and dad are kind of like a little nutty. Her mom is like mommy dearest probably. Now I know where Amy gets it from. And you had another comment about the villain throughout the middle build, which I thought was great. So will you share that with us? Yeah, in some ways, I thought the villain, uh, especially starting with the middle build, is is television. It's like the publicity machine, the gaze of society. Collectively, society is ferreting out scandal and tidbits, and it leaps to conclusions, and it acts like the judge, jury, and executioner, it, almost literally executioner, since it's made very plain that Missouri still has a death penalty. And it plays on Nick's weaknesses and aggrandizes, accelerates his weaknesses, really brings them out. So it was quite a villainous force in the middle build. Yeah, I think that was really great. And definitely um, a cautionary tale for everyone. Um, Anne, will you take us through the point of view and narrative device? Yeah, this story is all about point of view and narrative device. These are the considerations that make this story work. Uh, to the extent that it does. It's generally speaking, you could call it omniscient because we get perspectives from Amy, from uh, Nick, I keep wanting to call him Ben. uh, And we at least see one scene that's detective bony without either of the principal characters in it. But the first person voiceover narratives from Nick's and Amy's points of view makes it feel like alternating first person, which I understand the novel is written in. So, Both narrators are entirely unreliable, and we quickly begin to realize that. So the narrative device, there are several, um, it's told in a series of alternating uh, scenes between real time and flashbacks, and you get the little crawl on the screen that tells you how many days gone, how many days home. And you get close-ups of Amy writing in her diary, so there's an epistolary quality brought over from the book as well. The narrative drive is, it it uses the full palette. We get mystery, suspense, and a certain amount of dramatic irony. In the beginning, suspense rules because neither we nor Nick nor the police know what's going on. We all know the same amount, nothing. Little by little, mystery kicks in, and we begin to suspect that Nick knows a few things that we don't know yet. And then dramatic irony collides with suspense at about the, I forget where it is in the movie, where we are shown that Amy is alive and we start to see her big escape plan unfold. Then we, the audience and Amy, know things that Nick and the police don't yet know. So it's all, the whole movie is about mental and emotional manipulation, the holding and releasing of information. And it does the same thing to the audience that Nick and Amy are doing to each other. So I did not enjoy this movie at all. I have made no secret of that, but I will admit it's an excellent resource for studying how mystery, suspense, and dramatic irony work together with narrative devices like the non-linear storytelling and the epistolary uh, writing in a diary type of, of device the writer can control exactly how much the reader knows using these types of devices, but 
it has to be you, the writer rather has to be really, really sure of their genre and the overall arc in order to know exactly when to reveal and when to conceal the information in order to keep the momentum going. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. How about the objects of desire, aka the wants and needs? Well, we're back to the <laughs> the, the MacGuffin here. The MacGuffin. Um, <laughs> I'll start with Amy. She seems to want complete control over the men in her life, which is her way of basically getting revenge on her parents. Nick seems to want to find his wife at first, but then we quickly learn that what he really wants is to be free of her. He seems to want an easy life and no responsibility. And Detective Boney just wants to get at the truth. Now, as to needs, they both need therapy. That was... <laughs> For sure. Um, Rick, uh, excuse me, Nick needs to find, yeah. So Nick true. needs to find so his true. moral center, some kind of courage, but he never does. It's ironic that he also needs to take responsibility for his life. And in the end of the story, that turns out to be almost a weakling's excuse for not leaving his psychopathic wife. So he finds responsibility, but it's also a weak choice. Um, I'm not sure there's any way to interpret the needs of a psychopath like Amy. A long time ago, she might have needed to feel loved and protected by her parents and didn't get that, so that's why she's the way she is. But by the time the story starts, it feels way too late for that. Excellent notes. Okay, let's move on to the controlling idea and theme. Back to me. Back to you. <laughs> the thriller runs on an essential controlling idea of life is preserved when the protagonist unleashes their special gift, or to the negative side, death or damnation triumphs when the protagonist fails to unleash their gift. This is clearly a negative ending thriller. Uh, the crime element is unresolved. Amy gets away with murder. Justice isn't done. And the victim, generally Nick, winds up at damnation because he fails to release his gift of moral courage. So, and this is back of the envelope stuff because it was hard for me to watch this movie, so I didn't watch it like a second time. But here's my take on what the controlling idea might be for this particular story. The protagonist who is victimized by the villain sinks to damnation when he lacks the moral courage to tell the truth about her and liberate himself. Yeah, I think that's good. And I think that lacking of moral courage really tracks with the morality testing surrender plot. So Agreed. that's yeah. great. Yeah. That's great. Okay, so let's get into our favorite part of the show, the good examples. So Jari, start us off. Well, I mean, the music's great. Uh, it's actually done by Trent Reznor and Atticus Rose of Nine Inch Nails fame, uh, which if you're not a Nine Inch Nails fan, uh, you probably didn't grow up when I grew up. <laughs> or uh, you just don't like, you know, that dark kind of dark metal alternative scene but but the music's done really well uh the opening scene after nick talks about cracking open his wife's head just the town and the way it's kind of put up it's just really well done yes i made note of that specifically the rapid cuts it's like as soon as i tried to get my eyes on the scene it would change to a different scene and so it was very unsettling and you couldn't really see what was going on and so i thought that with the music you know the it really set the tone of like what you see you're not going to really be able to figure anything out until you know what i mean it just it did that it set that tone so yeah i had a couple thoughts on the music and one was that uh, although i am a trent reznor and nine inch nails fan the music was designed, it says so in the x-ray, to make the audience uncomfortable. And it it made me physically uncomfortable, which was the beginning of my dislike of the movie. But 
Another thing is when you're writing and you're not, it's not a screenplay, you're writing a, a novel. I have done this and I'm sure other writers have done it too. I have theme music in mind. And there's a way that that drives a subtext in your writing. So I don't know exactly what words Jillian Flynn might have used to evoke this kind of shimmering high intensity feel that Trent Reznor put into the music. But writers should think about what would be the background music to this scene. And sometimes that will help bring out subtext. Absolutely. Oh, totally. The music is just so eerie. and uh, But other, other than that, there's a lot of cool little references. Um, Nick uh, makes a reference to Jane Austen in the library. Just so happens that uh, Rosamund Pike played Jane Bennett in Pride and Prejudice as an FYI. So if you go look through that. And she did <laughs> a, a good job there. A uh, very different acting job for her on that one. <laughs> My God, Yeah. The nice thing also is that some of the facts that they bring up in this movie that parallel society are just eerie, striking, and heartbreaking. You know, the third leading cause of death of pregnant women are quote unquote people who love them. And that's a true statistic. Yeah. It's just awful. shocking and horrifying. So the society part of it, really powerful and sad. And I think they do try to say something about that needs to be solved because that's just heartbreaking. Yeah. And a cautionary tale to parents as well with, uh, and that's just writers. Don't emulate your children in your books for life and turn them into psychopaths. Okay. Valerie, tell us what you thought of here of the movie and, and what you think it's a great example of. Well, I thought the ending was a great example of something that is surprising yet inevitable. Audiences, generally speaking, are primed for a happy ending here or a positive ending anyway. We're expecting Amy to come to justice. We're expecting them to be separated and divorced. And if they're not living happily ever after, truly happily ever after, at least things are set to take a positive turn. So it is surprising that Amy and Nick stay together in the end. It's inevitable, though, that the two of them are going to stay trapped in each other's webs because that's just the type of people they are. Neither one of them is above board and upstanding individuals. These two people have been attracted to each other because they're alike and they can't seem to operate in any way other than underhandedly, other than trying to manipulate the other. This is just how these two people would be. Now, in saying that, while it is surprising and inevitable, I don't think it's believable. I didn't dislike the movie, but this is where I kind of went, ah, <laughs> you, you almost <laughs> did it. <laughs> um, there were just too many holes in Amy's story. It was going along great, but when she comes back after having murdered Desi, that to me is where it seemed to fall apart. The police and the FBI just did not behave in a believable manner. Even Nick said, oh yeah, well, where did she get the box cutter? And you're telling me a police officer is going to turn around and say, just be glad she's home? I, I don't think that, that just, to me, it took me out of the story. And that's, to me, that's always the litmus test. Whenever something happens that reminds me that I'm watching a movie or reading a book, it, it doesn't work. So it was surprising and inevitable, however, not believable. The other thing I wanted to say is just to underscore something that Anne mentioned earlier, and that is that this film and this story is a great example of how to use suspense. And I wanted to bring that up because when we talked about Carrie, that was a huge issue, that we were in dramatic irony for most of the story, and that 
you know, when the audience knew what was going to happen, it kind of took the wind out of the sails a bit. But here, suspense was used very effectively. And even when dramatic irony was used, and by that I mean even when we knew that Amy was alive and Nick didn't, we were still wondering what is going to happen next. Every time something twisted and turned or zigged when we thought it should zag, we were wondering what was going to happen next. So it was a, a great story and a great film on first viewing, but don't scratch the surface too much. <laughs> great notes. Yeah. Leslie, give us your takeaways. I found this movie really hard to watch, so I can appreciate that the writer was innovating a lot and and the execution is fairly solid. Characters don't need to be likable for the audience to be able to relate to them. Uh, see Lolita and <laughs> Humbert Humbert. But when the main characters are despicable, you know, when all of them, when there's no character that you can really relate to who's a primary character, you want to consider what you're trying to accomplish with that and whether it's worth the cost. Full disclosure, I am clearly not the target audience for this particular story. I know that people like this exist. I do not want to be reminded of it in my time off. And that's more about my preference than the technical merits of the story. But what I take away from this as a writer and editor is to be mindful of these choices because it does impact the audience. It does impact whether people recommend your story to others and that's really important to, you know, focus on the story that you want to tell, but also be thinking about who you are telling it for. Okay, great. Well, I think Jari and I were the only ones that loved the movie. Like, I loved this movie. And, and you're right, they're despicable. And I found them so intriguing. I was gushing about the movie when I got done watching it. And my husband was like, all right, crazy. Like, I can't talk to you about this anymore. So I think that is so interesting about taste and about, you know, when we watch shows with despicable characters like Breaking Bad or even, well, like Dexter is kind of a different example because he is, I don't know, he is, you find yourself really sympathetic for a serial killer in that one. Um, so anyway, it is, it's super interesting and I'm, I'm going to have to think about it and do some inner reflection about what is it that I liked about this so much. Well, that wraps it up for us for this week. Great discussion, everyone. Thank you, Anne, Jari, Leslie, and Valerie for our excellent editorial insights into Gone Girl. We hope our discussion helps you and your clients write a better thriller and a better story in general. Links to the Fool's Cap and other materials will be in the show notes document. We'd invite everyone, all of our listeners in the StoryGrid editing community to comment, argue with us on our interpretations. And if you have a favorite movie that you'd like us to look at, suggest it to us on Twitter at StoryGridRT. If you're interested in hiring a certified StoryGrid editor or you'd like to find out more about what we do, visit StoryGrid.com editing. If you want to connect with one of us personally, our links to our websites can be found in the show notes. And join us next week when we once again take a look at the war genre with Catherine Bigelow's 2008 film, The Hurt Locker. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. 